Episode 200, Kermit Zarley on Reformation. This episode of the Trinity's podcast, for the first time ever, is being released on a Sunday. And the reason is that this is October 29th, which some denominations celebrate as Reformation Sunday. And of course, this is leading up to Reformation Day, which is on the 31st of October. Mr. Kermit Zarley was a successful professional golfer on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Commenting on his unusual name, legendary comedian Bob Hope once referred to him as the Pro from the Moon, and so Mr. Zarley has been nicknamed the Pro from the Moon, or Moon Man. In 1965, Mr. Zarley co-founded the PGA Tour Bible Study Group, which continues to this day. A graduate of the University of Houston, In 2001, he received an honorary doctorate from North Park University in Chicago, which has a lecture series named for him. His published books include Solving the Samaritan Riddle, Peter's Kingdom Keys Explain Early Spirit Baptism, The Gospels Interwoven, Palestine is Coming, The Revival of Ancient Philistia, The Third Day Bible Code, Warrior from Heaven, and The Restitution of Jesus Christ. This last book was initially promoted under the pseudonym Servetus the Evangelical. On his website, he writes that he, quote, has been an evangelical Christian all his adult life and more. He believed in the doctrine of the Trinity for 22 years until reading himself out of it in the Bible, end quote. He blogs on golf, theology, the Bible, and current events at the Kermit Zarley blog on Patheos. Today, I have the privilege of talking with him from his home in Arizona, Mr. Zarley, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Glad to be here talking with you, Dale. Mr. Zarley, we're putting this episode out on a Sunday, not on a Monday, and it's a special Sunday. What's the occasion? This is uh, October 29th, 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther starting the Protestant Reformation. This is one of the epical things in Christian history. I mean, it's hard to imagine the world if this hadn't happened. You know, what what would have happened the last 500 years if this event had not occurred? And I guess the image we all have in our head is nailing theses to the church door for disputation. Martin Luther was so concerned about the indulgences that the Catholic Church, his church, the Roman Catholic Church, he was a monk, and uh, that they were selling forgiveness of their sins. And so that is a large part of the 95 thesis that he wrote. But he has, of course, lots of other points in there, too. Right. So they thought they could give you time out of purgatory where you have to suffer for your post-baptism sins and you could give a hundred bucks and this would save you a hundred years or they had these tables and charts that had different amounts that you could give for different sins. And they also exploited people's uh, fear that their precious Aunt Joy or whoever who had died was now suffering in purgatory and you could give a donation on her behalf and, you know, supposedly end her suffering. So it was a wonderful money-raising technique, but he, he had ethical and scriptural objections to it. So he's a big hero you know, for doing this. You know, the thing that I think we forget is how much courage it took in the moment to, as they say, speak truth to power, to look this venerable institution in the eye and say, you can't do that. Or what are your scriptural grounds for doing that? Did God really give you permission to do that? 
I mean, who does this guy think he is? You know, what kind of chutzpah is this where this little guy can stand up and talk back to this big, worldwide, old, prestigious institution? Yeah, it was quite an act of courage. And it was his own church, too. That's right. So I kind of think it's easy to be a fan of the Reformation without being a fan of Reformation. (laughs) So (laughs) the Reformation, you know, for... Americans, English people, some Germans, other European and other countries. It's part of our ethnic identity, you know, that we're not Catholic. The story about Martin Luther is a part of our lore. It's part of what holds us together, not just if we're Lutherans, but if we're Baptists or Reformed, etc. So the Reformation, I mean, how could you not like this? It's, there's so many great stories there. It's such a big turning point in Western history. But now Reformation, I mean, it always starts when some stubborn person comes along and says, wait a second, did God really authorize that? Is that something that was taught in scriptures or that's really uh, part of apostolic teaching and practice? Because, you know, I, I say it's not. Well, who does that guy think he is? <laughs> he's just a, he's a punk. <laughs> Yeah. I remember when I, um, when I was a young professor, I wrote a paper about the Trinity. And it wasn't explaining the Trinity or exactly really objecting to it. The point of the paper was, what do these Trinity formulas mean? Do they mean this or do they mean that? If they mean this, that doesn't seem right. There's problems with that. If, if we interpret them this other way, there's problems with that. And so what are we going to do? That, that's kind of the thrust of the paper. And I remember a well-known philosopher, who I won't name, uh, who is ordinarily an extremely nice person, just kind of unexpectedly shot back like, well, oh, so you think you've got the Trinity all figured out, huh? Got this aggressive attitude like, you know, how dare you, you know, even sort of call into question such an important thing? Who do you think you are? Well, I didn't think I was anybody. I was just a little professor, a little... uh, philosopher trying to interpret what the tradition says. Same thing. And it would come from pastors and even uh, Bible professors. One of my mentors in my life was S. Lewis Johnson, a Greek and systematic theology professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for decades. Lewis was uh, a very good friend of mine. In fact, he uh, wrote the foreword in my first book, The Gospel's Interwoven. And Lewis said that to me when I first told him that I was questioning the doctrine of the Trinity and whether or not the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And he said, who do you think you are? His position on that was, that the church councils that decided these things, starting with the first ecumenical council, which was at Nicaea in 325, in which the 318 bishops wrote the Nicene Creed, that uh, God would not allow the church to go astray like that, you know, like I was saying. Yeah, so you literally got the who do you think you are words thrown at you. Was this after your 2008 book called The Restitution of Jesus Christ? No, this was uh, right when I started to question Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Well, not right when I did. I I first started to question it 
in the winter of 1979 and 1980. And then I, I looked at it for a couple of years. And then in 1982, I made a decision that I don't think the Bible teaches this. And so I, I went to various professors and talked to them about it. R.C. Sproul, Ed Clowney, who was at the time president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, played golf with him. Then we had lunch and we talked about it. But the person that meant the most to me and talking to about this was S. Lewis Johnson. I spent six hours, the first time we talked about it, I spent six hours in his home mm. uh, discussing this. The next time I came back, he lived in Dallas, I lived in Houston. I came back and we discussed it again for four hours. And uh, yeah, I had quite opposition. So if somebody asked me, who do I think I am? I don't know. I mean, I just, all I think I am is a Christian and somebody who's studied these things with a lot of help from other scholars. And that's just about it. I mean, I don't think I'm smarter than everybody else. I don't think I'm more spiritual than everybody else. I don't think I've received some uh, flash of divine inspiration, you know, in a dream or something like this or a, a prophecy I'm just a scripture reader who is trying to follow Jesus. And sometimes when you do that, you find out that small c Catholic tradition goes contrary to what you're studying. So then it's Jesus or the apostles versus tradition. So who are you going to pick? Yeah. I mean, I think that was Luther's estimate of himself as well. I mean, he, he knew he wasn't perfect. I mean, God knows he had some very horrifying imperfections. Some of the things that he said about the Jews when he was old and cranky are not fit to be repeated on a family podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll put a link on the blog post episode if you're curious what I'm talking about. But um, I don't care to repeat what he said. Yeah, I mean, he would just he just says, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. You know, I'm just a disciple. I have to go with what I understand this to be telling me because I regard it as the word of God. So like the apostle said to the Jewish high council, you have to obey God rather than men if those two are conflicting. So, sorry, Catholic tradition, I, I'm i going to have to disagree with you here. Yes. It's hard to see anything wrong with that kind of reasoning, you know? Roman Catholic people don't necessarily disagree with that reasoning. Some of them will admit that from time to time, the church needs to reform and, you know, change things in light of earlier tradition. Sometimes they say that, but... They never did completely get rid of indulgences, you know. They just, they, they don't use it in as crass a way, but you can still earn indulgences, I think, by doing certain things. I've seen it in uh, recent times. Oh, I saw it in some papal statement that had to do with some kind of devotion, like doing certain religious acts would give you a certain degree of indulgence. So they still have that theology of grace where they're the dispensers of grace. And so then this is one of the graces they think that they can hand out. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we distinguish the Magisterial Reformation from the Radical Reformation.
I think it's maybe important to take a wider view about Reformation. A lot of times when you hear talk of the Reformation, what people mostly have in mind are Calvin and Luther and the people associated with them, maybe Zwingli. But, you know, historians distinguish the magisterial Reformation from the Radical Reformation. And the Radical Reformation is important, too. There was this heavyweight historian named Williams, who was a Harvard scholar in the 20th century, and he wrote kind of the definitive book about this. It's called The Radical Reformation. The magisterial reformers, they ended up thinking that their churches had a teaching magisterium that could dictate doctrine. And the other ones that are called the radical reformers are usually called Anabaptists because they came to believe in believer's baptism, which a surprising number of people got killed about back in the 16th century. It was considered a treasonous thing to take the authority to baptize and to just baptize as a believer. So, you know, Luther and Calvin ended up persecuting the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were kind of like the second wave of the Reformation, um, and they were just more radical. They were more kind of Bible only and not as hierarchical and traditional as the um, the magisterial reformers. I mean, another way to put it is Calvin and Luther were big time Augustinians. They were very influenced by Augustine and his theology of grace and predestination and things like this. And the radical reformers, not necessarily so much. Anyway, I think they're important because they wanted to reform more than Calvin and Luther did. And um, some of them, you know, actually, like you and I in recent times, some of them, because of the Bible, actually turned into Unitarians, people who think that the one God is the Father, and they don't think that the one God is the Trinity. Yes, I've got a, a little bit about that in my book, not much. My book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ, I tell in there about thousands of Anabaptists being put to death in the early years of the Reformation by both Catholics and sometimes Protestants. So the Anabaptists, in a sense, weren't a part of the Reformation, or at least they didn't adhere to what the, the uh, top reformers taught, like Luther and Calvin. Well, Williams treats them kind of like a, se a separate branch of what's or a different part of the same movement. I mean, they're still rejecting Catholic authority. You know, they're rejecting the leadership of the bishops and the Pope. Yeah. They're choosing scripture whenever it clashes with later traditions, but they're just, they're just more radical, you know? Like you said, if you read the history, it's, it's actually quite depressing because it's an endless parade of people being strangled, beaten, <laughs> hung, drowned, burned at the stake, you know, over some of these differences like belief in believer's baptism or, you know, what was considered terrible heresy about the Trinity by people like Calvin. Well, the reason I thought about having you on, Mr. Zarley, for the 200th episode of the Trinity's podcast was an interesting little blog post you wrote entitled, How to Fact-Check Flaky Theology with the Bible. And this was in response to some articles in the flagship magazine of American evangelicalism, Christianity Today. So, how do we fact-check flaky theology? <laughs> well, I made some quotes of these two articles. One of them was the Reforming Catholic Confession. This was in uh, the October issue of Christianity Today. A committee 
of 18 men introduced this by saying what we Protestants of diverse churches and theological traditions say together. And so then there are subheadings in this article, and they are triune God, Holy Scripture, human beings, fallenness, Jesus Christ, and so on which reads like a church creed or a doctrinal statement with those headings. And then I also quote from an article that a lady wrote, Jen Wilson. Yeah, that was called Fact Checking for Flaky Theology. Yes, and she makes some very good points in that article, I think. And her thesis is that we should always be checking to make sure that our theology adheres to what the Bible actually teaches. And so what I'm saying in comparing these two is that, well, she makes a statement that we should hang on to traditions, traditional theology that we've been taught, which comes down from like leaders of the Catholic Church. And so I'm saying that, well, she calls it time-honored interpretations and so then I focus on the doctrine of the Trinity, which these men in their article had affirmed. And I'm saying that that comes from the leadership of the church in subsequent centuries after the Christianity began in the first century. I suggest that maybe she's got a bit of a contradiction here. If I'm right, that the Trinity doctrine is not really in the Bible. Yeah, and I mean, it's a historical fact that this doctrine of a tripersonal God came into existence for the first time in the 300s AD. And in my book, What is the Trinity? I outline kind of the basic steps about how this occurred. The small c Catholic tradition developed in various interesting ways. And it was only in about the year 381 that really they are affirming a triune God. They're not even really affirming it in 325, I argue. They're making a point that the Father and Son share an usia, an essence, but you don't still see a triune God really taught there. So yeah, it's a fact that there wasn't belief in the Trinity until kind of surprisingly late in church history. I mean, almost up to 400 sounds like a long time ago to us, but... You know, if you're thinking the time of Christ, that's a long way forward. You know, that's more than three centuries forward from the time of Paul. You know, a lot can happen in three centuries. A lot of things can develop and go astray, in a sense. That statement about the Reforming Catholic Confession, to me, it seems like kind of a preemptive strike against the criticism that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox will always throw in the direction of Protestants, which is, you know, it's just every man for himself. It's just me and the Bible, and you got 30,000 denominations, and it's just chaos, and you really need a teaching magisterium of bishops to guide you, and you don't have that, and that's your whole problem. And so they're emphasizing that, no, we all agree on all this stuff, including all the things that you think are important, the triune God, uh, two natures of Jesus, and et cetera. If you think about it, as evangelicals, our official ideology is that we base everything on the Bible. But if you actually look at what a lot of evangelical theologians say, and kind of how they operate, how they argue, how they reason, it's clear that for a lot of them, the unifying factor, the root of it really, is Catholic tradition 
as expressed in the first, especially the first four ecumenical councils. In our view, they're not basing things actually on biblical teaching in many cases, but they're basing them on these creedal statements. So that Christ has two natures is expressed in the 451 council, and that Father and Son are one essence is expressed in the 325 council. And the Trinity, I think, is implied in the 381 council. And they just want to pound the table and say, these are the things that unite all Christians. These are the things that hold all Christians together. It's this small c Catholic tradition yeah, but you and I just think, well, that's not good. You know, why isn't the New Testament the unifying factor? Martin Luther was questioning some of these authority positions of his church. What you and I believe is that Martin Luther and other leading reformers should have continued that approach so that, you know, you look at this doctrine of the Trinity this teaching by the church that Jesus is also God, uh, along with the Father and even the Holy Spirit, who they believe is a person, so that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are individuals, but they are all three the one God, which I don't think is very sensible, even though I believed that for 22 years. But I'm looking at a text in the Bible here in the uh, letter of Jude, who was considered to be a brother of Jesus. And he says, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And so what has happened is that the church came along later and began to change this faith that was once delivered because the early Christians, I believe, believed that there was only one God and Jesus called him the Father so that Jesus himself is not God. Jesus was a man. Now, there was something different about Jesus from the rest of us human beings. He had a virgin birth. And so I don't think the sin nature was passed down to Jesus. And he uh, followed the commandments of God and lived a perfectly righteous life. And that is what qualified him to go to the cross and die as a lamb without spot and without blemish for our sins on that cross. And because of that, God offers that salvation to us because of what Jesus did. But to say that Jesus is also God and that God is a three persons that I don't think is taught in the Bible, and this is what church fathers changed in these ecumenical councils. So they changed, I believe, changed the true teaching of the Bible, and we need to continue this Reformation spirit and examine these things to see if they really are taught in Scripture. Yeah, I mean, any Protestant, any evangelical should be amening this, right? They should be, <laughs> well, of course you should check things by Scripture. But see, the thing is, Kermit, that Scripture teaches Trinity and that Jesus has two natures. And then, well, then we'd have to discuss all of these famous proof texts that people like to appeal to. And, you know, in our view, you have to look at the whole picture of the New Testament in its first century context and when you really do that carefully, a lot of these alleged proof texts kind of just melt away. They melt away under the sun of just careful historical reading. 
there are a lot of things to talk about here, but part of the problem, I think, is that when you read your NIV study Bible or your ESV study Bible, you have translations and a bunch of notes that just, you know, hand these interpretations right to you as if they're self-evident. So, for instance, I remember in the ESV study Bible, I looked up, I think it was in Mark or Luke, the scene where Jesus gets baptized, and then God says, this is my son, my beloved, and then the Holy Spirit in some way comes down on Jesus. And the note says, see, so here you have the three persons of the Trinity with clearly with one essence, one triune God, right? All in action in one scene. No, that's, that's not what's there at all. <laughs> there wasn't anybody in the first century thinking about it that way. It just would have never occurred to that author. But here it is, you know, in this heavy tome produced by dozens of scholars. And how can that not be right? Well, our official ideology is we base everything on scripture, but our actual practices, we base things on Catholic tradition as much as we can. And we, we try to be as Catholic as possible, at least in those areas that people like Luther and Calvin agreed with. Um, we're just going to stick to the classical Catholic tradition. Here's an analogy. Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom to Peter. Yes. And you've got a very interesting book about this. I'll put a link to that episode and to the book on the podcast episode. But of course, there's a Roman Catholic interpretation of all of that, which is Peter is the first pope, the first bishop of Rome. Peter, the first pope, is given this special authority as the head over the church under Christ. There's a Catholic kind of spin on this, right? Yes. Imagine that every study Bible, every commentary you could actually get your hands on every translation just totally reflected that Catholic reading. And so you, the ordinary believer, would just look at that and say, well, that's just what it says. You know, it just says that Peter has this highest authority over the church because he's the first pope. And look, Jesus made him the first pope. So, like, how could anybody not think that? <laughs> Of course, there have been times and places where you'd have exactly what I just said. You know, if you're in the Middle Ages and um, your only commentary is written in Latin by a Roman Catholic, then, so to speak, all the authorities, all the authoritative voices that you're hearing are telling you that it says that. But they're wrong. But your situation is kind of hopeless, you, the, the ordinary believer. You're kind of stuck with that wrong view because... You're not aware of any competing scholars who take a different approach, right? You, you and I would, would have a hard time untangling that if every expert we looked at gave the classical Catholic interpretation. But we've got something similar with the Trinity because Protestant tradition, mainstream Protestant tradition, has evolved to just completely, purely exclude any argument, any discussion on this topic, if someone wants to say, well, wait a second, is there really a triune God in the Bible? What are you, a Jehovah's Witness? What are you, some kind of crazy cultist? Of course, plenty of heavyweight Bible scholars will tell you that there is no idea of a triune God in the New Testament. People like the Roman Catholic Hans Kung, for instance, will tell you this. We've evolved this tradition where it just prohibits certain questions from being asked, Okay, but then we're in, the ordinary person is in kind of a helpless situation 
because they might think something's fishy, something's up. They've heard that not all Protestants are Trinitarians, but when they go to look at it in their study Bible or in their commentary, they're getting Trinitarian commentary. Yeah, so there's, there's a kind of embargo against considering opposing arguments, which is really strange if you think about it. If it's a slam dunk case, you should just gladly debate all comers, right? Bring it on. Yeah. Think the Trinity's not in the Bible? Well, let's hear it, man. Go ahead. I'll give you half an hour. Go. I'll give you 20 pages. Go. Let's see the case that the Trinity's not in the Bible. Yeah, I wish they would do it in my case, but I'm never allowed. I think the church has made a big mistake, and it goes way back in history, of not allowing dissent and not listening to what the other person has to say. And so I don't have any way to be able to express myself on what I think the Bible teaches on this. And I have actually challenged some evangelical leaders about this to debate, and they refuse to do it. I think that's an unaccountability. If their case is so strong, they should entertain the idea. Right. I mean, a strong case, when it's compared to a weak case, just makes the strong case look better. Yes. It's like um, if you put a pretty person next to an ugly person, just makes the pretty person all the better looking. It's not going to take them down in any way because they're standing next to somebody that's ugly. Um, it's, right. So why aren't Kermit Zarley and Dale Tuggy being hauled in to be debated constantly so we can show everybody how their case is just easily amounts to nothing or can easily be refuted? Yeah. It's a little maybe telling. I think some of the better scholars among Trinitarians realizes that the case is actually very speculative and very tenuous. You have leading New Testament scholars nowadays who say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is not really taught expressly in the New Testament, but they think that church fathers in the following centuries concluded correctly that the uh, doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible in an embryonic form. It just needs to be brought out. And you have leading scholars like Tom Wright and Jimmy Dunn, Larry Otada, Richard Bauckham, all kinds of them who teach this. And it's called uh, developmental Christology. And I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it adheres to what Jude teaches there when he says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to you. In my book, I make this point, and I guess I've made this point in various places, you have to distinguish two positions here. One position is, okay, everybody knows the Trinity is not explicitly taught, right? They don't have enough language to even say it properly in the New Testament. Fine, everybody agrees on that. The usual fallback position that they take is, it's implied, it's obviously clearly implied yes. by what is said there. And so that's why it can very easily be drawn out by a careful reader. Okay, but the problem with this claim is that careful readers did not draw it out for more than 300 years, depending which book we're talking about. I mean, you don't see a tri-personal God until, as far as I can tell, sometime in the 370s. But, you know, in the time of Origen or in the time of Tertullian or Justin Martyr, if the Trinity, the triune God, was a clear implication of New Testament— 
then, you know, pretty much all readers would get it, or at least the ones that weren't in the grip of some crazy Gnostic theory or something. You'd have a lot of people getting it, right? If it's an obvious implication. I think so. Sometimes, though, I have to say, some of the most careful Bible scholars and historians and sometimes theologians, some of them say, actually, no, it's, it's not obviously implied there. Because, you know, it did take quite a while to develop, and that doesn't seem likely if it really is obviously implied there. It would have been obvious from the start. So they fall back to another position, which is, okay, what we're really saying is the Trinity is the best explanation of what Scripture says and doesn't say. It's the best explanation. Okay, but there's always multiple explanations of, of, of an observed phenomenon, right? Yeah. Why did this guy get sick? Well, maybe because he ate the guacamole, maybe because he uh, didn't wash his hands after going to the bathroom. Maybe this guy got sick because uh, someone coughed on him. There could be multiple explanations, and we try to figure out which one is overall the best, which one we should accept. Okay, so if we're talking about the New Testament, one explanation of everything that's there is really there's a triune God that's inspiring all this, and... That's why all these things are said. Of course, we have an alternate explanation of all of these passages. We don't dismiss things that we can't understand. We don't cut apart our Bible like Thomas Jefferson. We try to understand them in a first century context. And so, you know, we make points like a being can be called God and not be the one true God, which was taught to us by Jesus in John chapter 10, <laughs> in an often overlooked passage. But anyway, we have an explanation of these passages. We Unitarian, we non-Trinitarian Christians have explanations of these passages. And the Trinitarians, let's pretend they have one explanation and not a bunch. Okay, but to find the best explanation, you would need to carefully consider the rival explanations. That's exactly what they're refusing to do. Yes. They don't want to hear the other point of view because we already know we're right. And there's some real pride involved, I think, that it would just be too embarrassing, you know, for our group, for our identity, if some of these Trinity speculations turned out to not be right. And so they've just got to be right. I mean, we're going to get angry if someone suggests that maybe that's a mistake. We want to go by what James says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's what we don't do on the topic of the Trinity. We get mad really fast, call a person a heretic, slander them as hating scripture, cutting up scripture, thinking they know everything, refusing to believe what they can't explain, all these old slanders, and not actually like hearing what the person has to say. I was trained as a philosopher, and you know, say one philosopher believes in free will and another one doesn't believe in free will. Say I do believe in free will. I don't only read the free will guys. That would be crazy. If I'm interested in the truth of the matter, I'm not going to just only pay attention to the people that already agree with me. I'm going to read people that agree with me, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time exploring other positions and seeing if they are overall better positions. So it's always struck me as really strange how present-day academic theology and present-day evangelical academic theology, it struck me as strange that they do not want to have an argument about these things. Because they should want to, if indeed these things are so obvious. Yeah, I've seen many times 
people teach the Bible teach some particular theology from the Bible, and they only cite those biblical texts that seem to support their position, and they ignore the many other biblical texts that seem to refute their position. Yeah, I mean, it's very strange. I mean, imagine that you're a juror in a trial, like a criminal murder trial. If the attorney for the other side gets up and presents only a portion of the evidence and it totally makes their case look obvious, well, that's, that's kind of dishonest, right? You should, you should demand that, that this attorney can account for all the evidence, not just the little bits that are favorite to him. Maybe they found the guy's fingerprints on the gun, but then the, the guy also has an airtight alibi and someone stole his gun. So if you're just going to stick to the fingerprints part, it's going to sound like a slam dunk guilty verdict. That's not what the wise juror does. Wise juror wants to hear it all. You know, that takes some patience and some willingness to study, I think, that not everybody has. But if we're not willing to do that, we're just going to be a victim to hearing only one side. There's a proverb that says, the side that gets up to speak first in court always sounds right until the cross-examination begins. <laughs> now you've heard both sides. Now you can really judge. So... I've heard the Trinitarian side. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many books, articles, how many thousands of pages that's going to add up to. I looked really hard for an interpretation of the classical Trinity language that seemed to fit scripture and made any sense, like was consistent with monotheism, for instance, or with Jesus being a real man. And, you know, I looked high and low for that. I looked all over the place. I looked in the past. I looked in the current day speculations about it. And yeah, I was pretty shocked when I went back to the New Testament and the arguments from the New Testament to the Trinity just crumbled when you looked into them. Yes. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Zarley and I discuss the recent statement on the Trinity from the so-called Reforming Catholic Confession. Let's talk about the statement that you mentioned in your article, the Reforming Catholic Confession. They give a little summary of the triune God, and it's basically one sentence. I mean, the heart of it is one sentence. It goes like this, heading triune God, that there is one God, infinitely great and good, the creator and sustainer of all things visible and invisible, the one true source of light and life who has life in himself and lives eternally in glorious light and sovereign love. Now that sounds good to me so far. And the one God or the one true God in the New Testament is explicitly the Father. Even in the Apostles' Creed, even in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, the Father, all-powerful. Okay, but I didn't read the whole statement. Uh, One God, infinitely great and good, creator and sustainer of all things, visible and invisible, the true source of light and life, who has life in himself and lives eternally in glorious light and sovereign love in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then it gives a couple of texts, co-equal in nature, majesty, and glory. Now, I'm not sure quite how to interpret this. What does it mean to say that God lives in three persons? 
I don't think I understand what they mean by persons, and I don't think I understand what they mean by in. Here's one interpretation. The persons are like personalities or ways of living. So for one God who has life in himself, it sounds like God is a single person or a single self. And he's got these three personalities that he's always sporting. He's always manifesting or uh, even in his own intrinsic glory, he's living simultaneously in three different ways. But it's one him, right? They use personal pronouns and they use singular verbs. Who has life in himself and lives eternally. Because it sounds like one self, three personalities who are all just God. That's one way to take it. That's not the only way to take it. Because <laughs> we're in speculation land. I mean, my friends like uh, who are social Trinitarians, or I call them three self Trinitarians, like Dr. William Hasker, uh, emeritus from Huntington University in Indiana. He would say the three persons are three selves, three beings, they're co-equal in nature, majesty, and glory, and somehow they unite to make one God, although it's quite mysterious. I mean, it sounds like you've just described three gods, three glorious, majestic beings, but the tradition would say there's only one God. So again, it's a dark subject. But wait, this is supposed to be the great consensus that you know all Protestants believe? This is discouraging stuff. Yes, uh, when I was a Trinitarian, which I said I was for 22 years, in the two Trinitarian churches that I was in during that 22 years, we Christians who studied the Bible, I'm speaking especially of some of the men, we were all pretty good friends, some of us, we would be in the same Sunday school class and so forth, and we would study the Bible together. We uh, would have a little bit of frustration with our Trinitarianism from this standpoint. When you read the word God in your English Bible, you can ask the question, is that referring to the triune God? Or is that referring to someone in the Bible who we know for sure is God, and that is the Father? And, of course, we get that language, the Father, especially from Jesus. He called God the Father constantly. Yeah. And so when we read the Bible and we see the word God, there's this question there for a Trinitarian. Is this the triune God, which we often call the Godhead? Mm -hmm. And that, that is a word that some of the church fathers who were you know, post-Nicene fathers, that they taught about the Bible, that God right. is a Godhead. The divine nature, like the divine being. Yes, because the Godhead is the Trinity, the triune God. And uh, I find that to be quite confusing and frustrating. The simple way, and I believe the correct way, to understand the Bible when we read the word God especially when translators capitalize G in the word God, that that is referring to God the Father. That is the one true and living God that Jesus speaks of in his prayer right. in uh, John 17, verse 3. 
Right. So what you're saying is the word God could potentially refer to different beings. Some people use it to refer to the Trinity nowadays. But then Trinitarians will also talk about God, the Son, God, the Spirit, God, the Father. And so, yeah, it seems like it'd be a good first step to say, well, what do the New Testament writers mean when they talk about God? When I first started to look into this back around the year 2000, I asked a person who happened to be a Reformed scholar, what does the word God mean in in the New Testament? And he told me that unless the context requires that it refers to the one of the three, Father, Son, or Spirit, then if it doesn't refer to one of those three, you have to take it to refer to the Trinity. And I said, really? Hmm, that doesn't seem right. And I later found out that biblical scholars just blatantly disagree with this. And I mean Roman Catholic, evangelical, agnostic, any real textual scholar will back up what you just said, which is 99.9% of the time, God means the Father. That's what it refers to in the New Testament. 0% of the time, God refers to the Trinity or to his Father, Son, Spirit together. Zero. It never happens. Well, that's interesting. And then less than 1% can be argued that God refers to the Son or occasionally to something, someone else, like if Paul calls Satan the God of this world in that one passage. But yeah, all the places even where the Son is called God are disputed. But let's just suppose that sometimes the Son is called God, because we know that sometimes people can be called God. And that doesn't mean that they're God himself, because again, Jesus tells us this in John 10. He says, those are called gods to whom the word of God came. Yeah, but that God, 99% of the time, means the Father, makes sense on our theology, and it's very surprising on a Trinitarian's theology. On a Trinitarian's theology, you'd expect to see God spread around more or less evenly between the three of them, and you'd also expect to see God used for all three together. God the Trinity. But this doesn't happen. I mean, facts are facts. The texts are what they are. So yeah, that was, that was one of the things that got me thinking. All by itself, these linguistic facts are consistent with the Trinity, just logically barely consistent, but it's not what you'd expect. So you should probably keep looking into it. When you do, you see explicit New Testament teaching that the one true God is the Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, for us, for us Christians, there's one God, the Father. Oh, and there's also one Lord also. In addition to the one God, there's one unique Lord, and that's the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, the Lord Messiah, the one that God has made both Lord and Christ, as Peter preaches in the book of Acts. Well, yeah, this all makes sense. <laughs> is that bad? <laughs> or is that, is that a sign that we're on to the truth? I mean, shouldn't it make sense? It's divine revelation, right? If God is successful in his revealing, we should have a reasonably clear-eyed view, you would think. One of my contentions, Dale, on this is that the Bible teaches that God has a throne in heaven and that God sits on this throne. And of course, his throne symbolizes his sovereignty, his rulership in heaven. And then Jesus died and God raised him from the dead. And 40 days later, the Bible teaches, the New Testament says that Jesus ascended up to heaven and he sat down on God's throne at God's right hand. Mm -hmm. So that both God the Father 
and Jesus sit there together on God the Father's throne in heaven. But where is the Holy Spirit? Mm. The Bible never says that the Holy Spirit is sitting there with the Father and Jesus the Son on God's throne. Right. It's not a three-way bench like you seem to see in some of those medieval illustrations or paintings where you got three guys that seem to be sitting on the same thing. You don't have that in Acts. You don't have it in Daniel 7 either. Yeah. You have the Ancient of Days and then the One Like a Son of Man. Yes. That's the New Testament uh, theology and Christology. The one God is the Father, but then we also have the risen and exalted Lord who's been put in charge of all things. And so we worship them and the honor or the worship or the glory that's given to the Son is to the glory of God the Father because God is the one that raised him, like Paul says in Philippians 2. Yes. So yeah, it makes sense. And that's how these things go, right? If you... (laughs) If Catholic tradition tells you that this little wafer is the entire body of a man, wow. So people are constantly eating Jesus every time they do this ceremony and they're drinking his blood. And you say, wait a second, does it really say that? And then you come to the interpretation that, no, it's supposed to be representational. Okay, well now, great. I'm just back to a piece of bread and a sip of wine or grape juice then. This makes sense. This is how truth is. Truth should fit together with other truths. (laughs) If someone tells you that everything's got to be an impenetrable mystery, you better keep your hand on your wallet. I mean, they're trying to to get something past you. (laughs) Then when I say something like that about the Holy Spirit, people will ask me, then how do you view the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a person or not? My view on that subject is... I go back to creation. God created human beings in his image. And human beings have a spirit. According to the book of James, when a person dies, the spirit separates from the body. So human beings are made in the image of God and they have a spirit, but that spirit is not an individual being, another person. We are not three persons. And so if God is three persons and we are made in God's image, I think we should be three persons also. But no, we're not. We're one single person. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I believe God is a single person also. And the spirit is to God what the spirit of man is to man because man is made in God's image. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Zarley and I discuss the significance of biblical pronouns for God.
we also think that God is a single person, not only because that we're made in God's image and likeness, but also just because of the overwhelming pattern of language about God in the Bible. God is always a he and a him, never an it, never a them. And, you know, always takes singular verbs when his action is described and singular adjectives. And I mean, it just couldn't be any clearer. That's how you say that he's oneself or one person is that you call him he. <laughs> That's how human languages work. It's a powerful argument, really. And a number of biblical Unitarians have made this argument in the past and present. Yeah, when I began to look into this subject and I would look at all these many texts in the Bible that have the word God, I would say to myself, okay, now in these certain texts, me and my friends always believed that that referred to the Godhead, the triune God. But then I would discover these personal pronouns right there in the text referring to this Godhead. And that began to trouble me. How can the triune God be referred to as a he or a him. That didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, well, it's confusing. I mean, if they wanted to present it as a mystery, they could use both singular and plural pronouns, but they don't do that, right? It's just singular, 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 like a hammer constantly everywhere you look. And even when somebody has a vision of God, whether in a dream or in, you know, with, with your eyes, he appears like a guy. Like they see him walking, they see him sit on a throne, they wrestle with him. That's how you portray a single self. He would appear in humanoid form. That would make sense to us. Kermit Zarley, thanks for talking with us. I enjoyed it very much, Dale. Next week, the second half of my conversation with noted Christian author Kermit Zarley. Today's thinking music has been A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, the version posted at openhymnal.org. Did you know that the most popular English translation of this hymn's German lyrics was done by Frederick H. Hedge? He was an American Unitarian minister and also a professor of German literature at Harvard. In 1853, he contributed his translation of this hymn to a book called Hymns for the Church of Christ, which was produced by Unitarian Christians and published in Boston. You may have noticed that this week I cut out my traditional intro and outro. Do you think that's an improvement, or do you think I should put them back in? Let me know what you think in the Trinity's Podcast Facebook group, where I've posted a poll. Thanks for listening.